Blake White is our first presenter today. You'll see in your program that he'll be giving us two um, sessions. This one coming up, and they're both representing the law of Christ. Uh, you have seen his book at the back, perhaps, and perhaps after this session, all the rest of them might be sold. We'll see what happens. Blake came on our scene last year as we had him at the Bunyan Conference, enjoyed fellowship with he and his wife, and uh, enjoyed chatting with him. Uh, he has, uh, I think, a real unique combination of character traits. Uh, he's young, he's bright, uh, he's humble, not unlike myself and all of those good things about him. Uh, all right, so I'm not in that category all of a sudden. I understand that. I've appreciated just the fellowship with his wife last year, and I'm really delighted that he's had the opportunity to get to know you folk and to be part of this conference and to find a whole avenue uh, of discussion and opportunity for us to probe his mind a little bit and push him a little further and to work together as brothers who love the Lord. So Blake White is at, uh, still a student at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, and we're delighted to have him. So Blake, please come with us time. Thank you so much, Les, and once again, thank you for all who put this thing on. The ladies, it's, it's no small task to put on a conference even this size, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's pray. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Lord, bring that day soon. Father, we ask that this talk, along with the entire conference, Lord, would not only help us to learn about you, but to, to know you better. And that we would, even in this age, sin less, Lord, and bow our knees to Scripture and honor Christ. Help us to do that by your Spirit, even now, we pray in Christ's name, who lives and reigns with you and the Spirit, ever one God. Amen. All right, a quick word about listening. This is going to be a lot of material, a lot of references, and uh, I'm going to go fast, and so as to not frustrate you, it might be easier just to gra grab the book. Pretty much everything, <laughs> pretty much everything I say is going to be in there, and uh, make it easier on you to listen, and it would spike my book sales, and I'd appreciate that. Uh, and, and just a few words of thanks. Uh, I've been helped by a lot of people. I stand on the shoulders of many, even in this room. Uh, I want to mention Douglas Moo, who's been really helpful in this area. And also Dr. Wellam, who we'll have the privilege of hearing later. He's been my theological mentor in many ways, and I've learned, learned how to be a theologian from him, learned how to let exegesis be the lifeblood of systematic theology, and he even let me do an independent study with him on this topic. So he's been a blessing, as you'll see later. So thanks, Dr. Wellam. And of course, it goes without saying this will be from a New Covenant theology perspective. Although many within dispensationalism would agree with the final product, uh, in a lot of ways, on what is the law of Christ. We get there by different routes, but the final product, they're going to be very similar. It's quite a bit different from covenant theology, though, but as Brother David just mentioned, I mean, we're really appreciative of covenant theologians and uh, honor them and stand on their shoulders in the same way. And, and I understand their concern uh, when it comes to ethics. A lot of their problem with new covenant theology is ethical, and I understand that. I understand covenant theology's concern in this postmodern pluralistic culture, I understand their love of history, their love of tradition, their love of the confession, but I'm a Baptist, and uh, confessions are important, but they're always to be examined in light of Scripture, so I don't have a, a commitment to the 1689 confession. I have a commitment to the Word of God, so I differ. And if, if you haven't had a, a look at Gary Long's little booklet on the 1689 confession, I bet it's back there. If it's not, 
You can get it from New Covenant Media. It's real helpful on looking at the, the historical circumstances surrounding the 1689 Confession. I looked into it a little bit recently. Gary's helpful, but you can look at any book on Baptist creeds, and it's interesting. As you know, there was a confession in 1646 uh, that's very similar to New Covenant theology. It doesn't have all the, the covenant theology that the later covenant would have. And it's important to always realize that theology is never done in a vacuum. So with this 1644 confession, it was clearly Baptistic. It taught closed communion. Now, I don't know uh, what you think about closed communion. It doesn't matter. What's important to note here is that this confession, the 1646, taught closed communion, which has historically been very Baptistic. Then there's, of course, uh, the issues with 1689 and the fact that churches wanted toleration. So the Baptists come in, and they're wanting to say, hey, we're not crazy like the Quakers. We're good Protestants. Like the, like the Presbyterians, like the Congregationalists. So there was compromise in this confession. They wanted to rally around one confession. That's why both the Congregationalists and the Baptists rallied around the Westminster Confession and just changed it here and there. So it's interesting to know that the 1689 Confession, modeled after Westminster, doesn't teach closed communion. So they, they changed that. There's obvious difference with how the covenants relate. But this is what I found interesting. In the Catechism, that went with the 1689 Confession, it does teach closed communion. So you have you having wanting to, to get together, a little bit of compromise, wanting unity, not wanting to put others off. So in the Confession, which more would read than the Catechism, you teach closed communion. But in the Catechism, you, go, you don't teach closed communion. But in the Catechism, you do, because less people will read it. You'll be less divisive. So I just find that really interesting uh, to think about the, the, the historical circumstances surrounding the 1689 Confession. That's important to know. It's important to know how theology is developed and see its weak spots. So I'm, I'm a Baptist, and um, I'm not as concerned with that. I'm concerned with Scripture. So today, it's really an ethical question, isn't it? The law of Christ. It's really an ethical question. I used to go to a place in Austin uh, called Sixth Street, and it's a big kind of club scene, and we'd make a trip down there and try to engage people and talk, talk about the gospel and we inevitably weren't the only Christians down there. I'm sure you, you guys have uh, encountered this. Gary, I'm sure you've encountered it with open air, and a lot of brothers are well-intended, but maybe not the best method. So there was more than, more than once there were different people. There was one guy one time on a, you know, he's on the soapbox, he's got the, the microphone, and he's condemning homosexuality. You know, Leviticus 19, it's an abomination, in a very unhelpful way to engage postmodern Christians. Uh, so he didn't get much interaction, but... He was, he was preaching, he had a monologue going on, and here, I didn't do it, but my rebellious spirit, I wanted to approach him and say, yeah, that's, that's true, but you know, the next page says you shouldn't shave, and you look pretty clean, what's going on there? Why, why is one normative and the other not? And of course, ethics comes out to be a biblical theology question, doesn't it? Ethics, what our standard is, it's a hermeneutical question. So I'll say one more thing before we get into it. Christianity isn't all about ethics, though, is it? It's not just, a, not just a, about living, right? We live because Christ has lived. Grace is always the foundation, isn't it? I mean, just think about Paul's letters, the way he lays out Romans, Romans 1 to 11, filled with gospel theology. Then the imperative comes in chapter 12 and following. Therefore, based upon the mercies of God. Or Ephesians, the same way, 1 to 3, lots of doctrine, lots of biblical theology. And then chapters 4 to 6, he lays out the practical implications of the gospel. So Paul's ethics always gospel-driven. Or Galatians, think about Galatians. What's the print presenting issue in Galatians? It's circumcision. But Paul, in chapters 1, lays out the nature of his apostleship. Chapter 2 talks about justification, unity of Jews and Gentiles. Chapter 3, the law and God's purposes. 
chapter 4, verse 12 is the first imperative in the whole book. And he doesn't even mention circumcision until chapter 5, verse 2. So it's important what New Testament scholars have talked about in grammarian nomenclature, the indicative and the imperative. The indicative, what Christ has done, is the foundation for the imperative, what we are to do. This is common sense to you guys, but we should never forget it. We can never assume that. So it's the, the imperative flows from the indicative. Having said that, I think our tradition sometimes has been very strong on the indicative and sometimes not as strong on the imperative. So life is important. Justification is central, but it's, it, that's not the end of the story, is it? There's a lot to say about how we are to live and live differently. I think we, just because we're sinners, but even in our doctrine, sometimes we're imbalanced. We have the spirit. The new covenant has arrived. We are to live differently. I was struck just recently reading Acts and, and the way they called the Christian movement. They didn't call it the system or, or the doctrine or the worldview. They called it the way. So let's take obedience seriously, and that's what we're going to talk about today. What is it that we are to obey? So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 and 21. And I know you guys have spent a lot of time here, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this actual text, but a lot of implications. And uh, I'm sure, Jack, I didn't get to hear it, but I'll be sure to listen to the audio. I'm sure he handled it well, and we may have differed. We'll talk about that maybe later. But this passage, I mean, it's good to hear again because in many ways, this passage is why I'm a New Covenant theologian. As I mentioned earlier, exegesis is the lifeblood of systematic theology. That means we better do justice to all of Scripture. And this passage in particular is one that I find uniquely can't be done justice to by other systems. But New Covenant theology explains very well. So so I'm going to use this as a springboard and kind of... uh, jump from some of his phrases to other implications. Let's just read the passage. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. In context here, of course, Paul is not talking about New Covenant theology. I think that's important. There are certain passages I think sometimes that we, we, mis, we misinterpret because we're focused on what we want to see in the text. But first, I just want to say this is about Paul's, the nature of his apostleship first and foremost, isn't it? This is about missional living. This is about contextualization. So before we start talking about systems of theology, let's be sure that we're applying this in our own life to be missionaries in our own culture and adapting where we need to adapt in order to, by all means, save all we can. That's what Paul's talking about. So the intention of the Holy Spirit here is not about New Covenant theology, but in it we we gain insight, though, don't we, on how Paul relates to the law. First and foremost is about Paul's missionary evangelistic activity. Notice here, it's crystal clear that Paul does not see himself under the authority of the Mosaic Law. But he also, he doesn't say that the Mosaic Law is God's law for the New Covenant age. He distinguishes them. He sees himself as under the law of God, which is being under the law of Christ, literally in law to Christ. Okay, so first phrase, I'm not going to spend long here because you guys know this well, but he says, I'm not under the law. He's not under the law. The Old Covenant is just that. It's old. 
Uh, recently, there's a book, I'm not sure if you've seen it, it's uh, by a guy named Jason Meyer. He's a Southern grad, and he studied under Thomas Schreiner, and it's called The End of the Law, and it's Broadman and Holman. It's fantastic. It's put out either 2008, 2009, it's really, really well done. And before entering the discussion of the Old and the New Covenants, he, lay, he lays out a really important structural consideration on the structure of Paul's thought. He shows that Paul has several contrasts in his teaching. Think about all the contrasts in Paul's letters. He's got Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Age, New Age, Death, Resurrection, Law, Gospel, Futility, Hope, Decay, Renewal, Law, Faith, Sin, Righteousness, Slavery, Freedom, Flesh, Spirit, Letter, Spirit, etc. So what's, what's undergirding all these contrasts? What's, what's the structural foundation that undergirds them? And, and Jason Meyer, he's really just following Gerhardus Voss, who's following others, ultimately back to Paul himself. And here's what Voss writes. Voss writes, The comprehensive antitheses of the first Adam and the last Adam, sin and righteousness, the flesh and the spirit, law and faith, and these are precisely the historic reflections of the one great transcendental antithesis between this world and the world to come. I know that's a mouthful. What he's saying is history is structured around the two Adams. First Adam, last Adam, who brings about the old age and the new age. And this undergirds all of these contrasts, including the old and new covenant. So the old covenant's old because it belongs to the old age. And such, it's, it's transitory. It's non-eschatological. It's ineffectual. Meyer writes, old things are quali qualitatively old because they belong to the old age. New things are qualitatively new because they belong to the new age. Christ, the last Adam, inaugurated the new covenant and new creation through his death and resurrection. The last Adam gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. So that's just, just that's part of it. We could say a lot more, but as the candle is made redundant by the sunrise, so the old covenant is made redundant by the new. Galatians could not be clearer than this, can it? This is where we go, Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians! Have you not read Abraham's four seeds? <laughs> Galatians 3 is crystal clear, and interestingly... I read an article by T. David Gordon. Some of you guys probably know him, know that name. And he is a covenant theologian, but he's, he's more of the Westminster, California branch. You know, there's at least two, well, probably three strands of covenant theology. But there's, one of those is the confused Baptist that we'll just leave out for now. I'm just kidding. But there's two Presbyterian branches, really two strands. It's important to do justice to the two strands, though, and not just lump them together. We've got the one strand with the Westminster West, California, Meredith Klein, Michael Horton kind of strand, which is quite different. They see, they see the Old Covenant as a republication of the covenant of works with Adam. So they have a strong law-gospel contrast on this, this strand. And then, of course, there's the probably more popular strand of the John Murray-Westminster East strand that's more mono-covenantal. They would see the Mosaic Covenant as just another administration of the covenant of grace. So these two strands, well, T. David Gordon is on this Meredith Klein law-gospel strand, and he has a chapter in a recent book called The Law is Not of Faith, which is several essays on covenant theology. It's, it's recent. It's, it's, it's well done. I think it's a better strand of covenant theology. I think they're taking Galatians 3 a little more seriously, uh, still with problems, obviously. But his chapter is on Galatians 3, 6 to 14, and he's contrasting the Abrahamic covenant with the Mosaic covenant. And, and it's a good chapter to read. 
But I was fascinated by something he notes. I mentioned that John Murray is really responsible for the monocovenantal view of every other covenant. It's just a re- readministration of this, the one covenant of grace. And, and Gordon notes that to his knowledge, I haven't read a lot of Murray, but Gordon writes, to his knowledge, from 1931 to 1973, out of 221 reviews, articles, essays, and books, there's not so much as a paragraph written about the book of Galatians. Really? I found that fascinating. You're going to write about covenant theology and put the canon together and you're not going to write about Galatians? I'm just leaning on Gordon. I'm not sure if that's true. I haven't examined it. But Gordon looked in his bibliography. Gordon knows him well. That's the first place I'm going if I'm writing on the covenants. If I'm writing on how they relate, if I'm doing covenant theology, that's the first place I'm headed is Galatians chapter 3 and 4. Very clear, isn't it? The law had a definite historical starting point 430 years after Abraham and a definite historical ending point when the Messiah came. I mean, how many times does the word until happen? The law was our pedagogos. Our, it wasn't our tutor. It wasn't our schoolmaster. In the first century, the teacher, the didaskalos, was distinguished from the pedagogos. The, the, the slave, the domestic slave who would bring the student to the teacher. And the point Paul's making there, it's temporal. Because once the son reaches maturity, we don't need a pedagogos anymore. We don't need the, the domestic slave that took care of the child till maturity. It's a temporal point. The old covenant is uh, no longer in force. That, that's the point. Paul's not under the law. So if this, if this is charged with being antinomian, I believe we stand in good company. After all, it wasn't me, wasn't John Riesinger, wasn't any other New Covenant theology a pr- a proponent that said we're not under law. It was Christ and his apostles. So central to this new age, this new Adam also brings the gift of the Spirit, which empowers us to follow the law of Christ. The prophets foretold of a coming new covenant, new age, new exodus, new creation that would be characterized by the Messiah and by his Spirit. The future age was to be characterized by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Think about Ezekiel 36 and 37, Joel 2, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44. All these promises of the end-time gift of the Spirit were fulfilled at Pentecost. Now, all who are in Christ have the Spirit. All in the New Covenant have the Spirit. That is the distinguishing marker. Another way to say this is, is ecclesiology shifted from being Presbyterian to Baptist. All now have the Spirit. The church is made up of believers. So the spirit is the evidence that the future is now. The new age has come, and it's the guarantee that more future is coming. The kingdom will, in fact, be consummated. It's guaranteed. Why? We have the spirit. So we'll see that the believer in this age is not without need of exhortation. We're going to talk about that. But I don't want to downplay the fact that the spirit is central in the new covenant. We're called to walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. Be led by the Spirit, Galatians 5.18. Live and keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. Sow to the Spirit, Galatians 6.8. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8.13. So Doug Moo writes, It's difficult to avoid the conclusion, then, that life in the Spirit is put forward by Paul as the ground of Christian ethics in contrast to life under law. 
All right, back to 1 Corinthians 9.21. Notice Paul also said that he's not outside the law of God. He's not anamois. He's not lawless. In saying that believers are free from the Mosaic law covenant, Paul's not saying that we're completely free from any and all types of law. If by that we mean commandments in general. And this is important, I think, that we let biblical theology inform systematic theology. That's why I'm a New Covenant theologian. Biblical theology informs systematic. So the way we even talk about law, we need to be careful. And Paul, the vast majority of times when he says law, it's law covenant. It's Mosaic covenant. It's not just commandments in general. So the Lutheran tradition will often use law as just, or even Puritan sometimes, law is just, it's ahistorical commandments. Any demand from God is law. Well, I want to distinguish my view from that. When I say law, I mean the Mosaic Covenant because that's what the Bible means by law. So I'm going to say commandments instead of law to avoid that confusion. So we're not outside the law of God or the law of Christ. That's another way of saying it, but just law without any genitive modifier. We're under the law of Christ. We're under commandments. So he's not free from the law of God. So Christian freedom is not equivalent to individual autonomy. New Covenant believers are not lawless in the sense of living however we like. Also in 1 Corinthians 7, an important passage, Paul clearly distinguishes the commands of God in the New Covenant from the commands of God in the Old Covenant. Let me read 719. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So this passage, along with with chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, is really insightful and important for the argument I'm making. Paul says he's clearly not under the law covenant, 719 and 920, but he's still under the law of God, 921, which is the commandments of God, 719, which is the law of Christ, 921. Because, of course, circumcision was a commandment in the Mosaic law. It's clearly not a commandment of God in the new covenant. So it's also not the case that the Spirit has replaced all commandments or all lowercase law. And now one, now all we need is the Spirit and we're led subjectively. That's not the case. Sometimes you get this impression. Uh, think about Gordon Fee's work. I love Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee is a Pentecostal New Testament scholar who's really, really careful with the text. But let me read uh, what he says. He's talking about Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. This is what he says. This list of spiritual fruit is not intended to regulate Christian behavior by rules of conduct because truly Christian ethics are the product of walking and living in the spirit there can be no law nor may we turn Paul's ethics into a new law I appreciate what he's saying but there's more than that though there's more than that it's not simply led by the spirit or similarly Westerholm who I He's Lutheran-ish. I'm not sure if he's actually a Lutheran, but he's got a fantastic book on justification called Perspectives New and Old. Probably the best workout if you want to look at one volume on that whole issue. In one of his essays, he writes, not, not this book, a separate essay, he writes, quote, the fact that whereas the will of God for the Jew was found in the statutes of Torah, the Christian must discover it for himself as his mind is renewed and he grows in insight shows clearly that the will of God is no longer defined as an obligation to fulfill the law. The Christian must discover it for himself, the will of God? I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Uh, to, give, to give Westerholm justice, in another place in the same essay, he, he kind of reneges on that, but it just kind of contradicted himself. But 
you get this feel that there's no commandments, no binding normative commandments for New Covenant believers. I don't think so. So while believers are freed from the Mosaic law, we need not conclude that we're free from any and all commandments. Those who espouse, espouse that view, I don't know what they do with half the New Testament. It's an over-realized eschatology. Now, there, the Ten Commandments won't be posted on the new earth. We won't have to be told not to commit adultery on the new earth, but we're not there yet. We, we still need moral exhortation. Frank Thielman, uh, who's a really careful scholar, I've, I've been helped a lot by his work, uh, a whole lot by his work. He's a PCA minister, so I'm not sure how his exegesis lines up with his confession. I would love to talk to him about that sometime. But he writes this in a really helpful essay. This is a long paragraph, so listen up. I think this is really important. I think Thielman is right on when it comes to this issue of commandments in the New Covenant. This is what he says. As long as believers whose minds God has renewed live in this age, they must, not strive to be con- they must strive not to be conformed to it. Paul, therefore, handed down to his churches a set, of, a set body of moral teaching which provided a rough outline of what the Christian should look like who had been transformed by God. Although the time had come when God had poured out his spirit on believers and transformed their hearts, the new age is here, it was, it was still possible not to live by the spirit, to allow the present evil age such latitude that an outside observer might not know the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. With the death and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of God's spirit, the new age predicted by the prophets had dawned. The Mosaic law was now obsolete, and the spirit enabled every believer to discern the will of God. But the evil age continues to be present and often obscures the believer's moral vision. In such cases, the traditional moral teaching of the church, which Paul apparently handed down to his congregations as part of his gospel, remained necessary. So I think Thilman is grappling with what we have, with the data we have. You think about it, all these promises of the Old Testament, the Spirit being poured out, being caused to walk, and caused to obey the law of God, they're here. The new covenant's been inaugurated, but there's this overlap of the ages. We live between the times, so between the times, we still need moral exhortation. We still need commandments. Still the present evil age. So the spirit and moral exhortation are not at odds. Rather, the spirit uses moral exhortation to conform us to Christ. So guidance for the Christian, the new covenant Christian, is both objective and subjective. It's both internal and external. We've got to have both. For example, in Galatians, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, 5.23. But this is not at odds with the commandment and imperative to restore a brother in a spirit of gentleness. We have both. New covenant believers are not lawless. The New Testament is filled with commands and exhortations to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not yet fully walk in line with the Spirit, so we need moral exhortation. There are commandments all through the New Testament. Let me just read some. John 14, Jesus gives a new commandment. John 13, John 14, to love Jesus is to keep his commandments. Acts 1, 1 and 2 says that Jesus was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. 
which I think has implications for how we view, view the book of Acts as a side comment about ju- just description or prescription. Jesus gave the apostles commands. So what we see in Acts is the apostles being obedient to what Jesus commanded. Believers are to avoid sensuality, greed, and every kind of impurity because, quote, that's not the way you learned Christ. The Thessalonians were to aspire to live quietly, mind their own affairs, to work with their own hands, just as the apostles had instructed them to do. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2, and 3, Paul reminds them about the instruction they had given them through the Lord Jesus. Then he lays out the will of God, not by citing the Torah, but by laying down apostolic commands. So the New Covenant Church was both doctrinally, obviously, but also morally instructed by the apostles. Thielman's wording is that the apostles handed down traditional moral teaching. I'm calling that traditional moral teaching the law of Christ. 2 Thessalonians is clear in this regard. It says, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any person who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So part of the tradition, part of the law of Christ, is don't be lazy. Don't spend all your time on the Internet. I was talking with Dr. Wellum, one of my pet peeves at seminary, is, is students just slacking off at school. I mean, the other day I'm sitting behind three guys, three different guys, all three of them, all through the lecture on Facebook. They're learning about theology, and you have these guys updating their status. I just wanted to smack all three of the three stooges. Some of you guys and gals are going to serve on pastoral search committees. If it's a young, young gal guy, ask them, were you fishing Facebook in your seminary classroom? You... And then don't hire them if they were. Uh, you wouldn't believe. So don't be lazy. It's part of the law of Christ, part of the tradition that was handed down. So the tradition's no doubt doctrinal, but it's also moral. It's to be lived out accordingly. So this tradition I'm calling the law of Christ. So many, many, many other passages could be cited. I mean, it's, it's really self-evident, isn't it, that there are commandments in the Bible, commandments in the New Testament. We're not outside the law of God. We're under the law of Christ. It includes commandments, objective ones. So the question, though, is what is, what is this moral, moral tradition? What is the law of Christ? That is the question, isn't it? We are under the law of Christ. Paul says, I'm not, not outside the law of God. I'm under the law of Christ. So what does it mean? We're not autonomous individuals. What then is the law of Christ? Is it the case... One article by a guy named P.G. P. G. Nelson wrote that new, he, he described a New Covenant theology as holding to, the, we only hold to what's in the New, New Testament. That's all we have. What's in the New Testament, that's, that's what the law of Christ is. I don't think so. I don't think that works. I, th- I hope this is a misrepresentation of New Covenant theology. There may be some bloggers out there who expose such a view, but I certainly don't and hope you won't either. It certainly includes the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, no doubt, obviously, but it's more complex than simply what Jesus taught. So it's, it's difficult to define, though, isn't it? Thinking about what we have as far as the phrase, the law of Christ, we've got how many occurrences? Really one. Galatians 6.2, law of Christ. Of course, 1 Corinthians 9.21, in law to Christ, same idea. So we have very limited exegetical data to deal with. That's why the subtitle of my book is called A Theological Proposal, 
because we don't have a lot of data on what it is. So I'm, I'm assuming, and I think this is right, I'm assuming that when Paul writes to the Galatians, the Galatians know what he's talking about because he's been there. The letters we have are occasional in nature. I think there's more going on. Same with the Corinthians, this moral tradition. They knew what, what it was. That's why Paul didn't have to flesh it out when he used the actual label. So I'm, 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 I'm arguing for a theological proposal, meaning we have limited exegetical data, but I think it all fits together. Plus, when you're my age, everything you do is a proposal. So a theological proposal. So two places we have the actual, the actual word, law of Christ. The law of Christ is the demand of God on new covenant Christians who are no longer bound to the Mosaic law. The law of Christ is the law of God for those who live on this side of the resurrection. It's the new covenant counterpart to the Mosaic law. God has an eternal moral will for the old covenant Jew. This was expressed in the Mosaic law. For the new covenant Christian, this is expressed in the law of Christ. However, it's important that they're dislike in many ways. Doug Moo writes, quote, Christian behavior is now guided directly by the law of Christ. This law does not consist of legal prescriptions and ordinances, but of the teaching and example of Jesus and the apostles. The central demand of love and the guiding influence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, end quote. So law of Christ, it's not an exhaustive list of rules, but it's principles centered on love, guided by the Spirit, drawn from the example and teachings of Christ and his apostles, and ultimately drawn from the entire canon, viewed through the lens of Jesus Christ. So as we'll see, the law of Christ contains specific commandments, but believers are to be led by the Spirit. There is a subjective element. We're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Romans 12, 2. So I want to propose, as a good Calvinist, I want to propose a good five-point definition of the law of Christ. I had four, but I had to make one up because that wouldn't work. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I've got five. I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then we'll unpack them in the next two sessions. Number one, the law of Christ is the law of love. Number two, the law of Christ is Christ's example. Number three, the law of Christ is the teaching of Christ. Number four, the law of Christ is the teaching of Christ's apostles. And number five, the law of Christ is the whole canon interpreted in light of Christ. Point number one, the law of Christ is the law of love. Love is absolutely central to the new covenant. I feel like, I feel like our circles often don't emphasize the centrality of love like the Bible emphasizes the centrality of love. We need to have conferences on love. Love is not simply a fuzzy feeling, though, is it? We've got to define it correctly. It's not a fuzzy feeling of affection, but it's self-sacrificially giving of self for the good of others and the glory of God. It's a verb. God is love. He's the self-giving God who calls his people to be self-giving lovers of him and others. 
And this is why so many of us are discontent with life. We're living for self rather than for God and for others, to give ourselves out for others. It's what we were created for. Christ died that we would no longer live for ourselves. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he replies, quote, you shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your minds. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Of course, you know, he's, Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And where the neighbor there, of course, is the fellow Israelite. But we know in the New Covenant, the neighbor is anyone in need of help. Luke 10. Called to do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. Galatians 6. So vertical love and horizontal love are inextricably bound together. And I think we need to hear that. To love God is to love others. I was recently reading, uh, it came out, I think, in 08 by a guy named Dorset, a biography of A.W. Tozer. We have any A.W. Tozer fans? I'm not. I was shocked. I was. I'm not anymore. Let me just share a little bit about, about this biography. Um, his oldest son, his oldest son uh, said that his, his mom, Ada, was a single parent. His parents, his parents were together all their life until A.W. died. His, mom said, his, his oldest son said that his mom was a single parent. And he often, he often uh, refused raises, and he often gave his money away. And that sounds really pious, doesn't it? Until you realize that his, his wife was at home struggling to feed seven children, and needing a vehicle. I'm reading the Bible, and I say, that's worse than an unbeliever if I'm reading 1 Timothy 5. Her, her son had to start a savings account for her behind his back because he wouldn't provide for her. She couldn't come to the conferences he went to, even when the kids were out, out of the house. She felt abandoned and alone. Uh, she, uh, he refused to host or, or visit relatives. And after he died, the wife said, My husband was so close to God, a man of such deep prayer, always on his knees, that he could not communicate with me or our family. I say a piety that neglects the neighbor, and especially those of your own household, that's a false piety. I mean, oh, that, oh, that our spouses, oh, that my wife, oh, that our spouses, when we die, would say, oh, he loved Christ, and he loved me. He loved God, and he provided for me and my kids. Vertical love is inextricably bound with horizontal love. To love God is to love neighbors. Love is central. One cannot claim to love Christ without love for the body of Christ. There's an intense unity between Christ and his body in there. That's why when, when Jesus wrecks Paul's, Saul's world, he says, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Paul was persecuting Jesus' body. Why didn't you visit me? Why didn't you feed me? That is my body. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says, If a person claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. This commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
As mentioned above, Galatians 6.2 says the law of Christ. Preceding this verse, in 5.13 and 14, he says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, New Covenant theologians ought to be characterized by love. Amazingly here, Paul says that true freedom comes by becoming slaves. That's the word. Becoming slaves of one another through love. The gospel frees us to not worry about self and to give ourselves for others. Then he says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Again, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Freedom comes through slavery. Man, that only makes sense in a church, doesn't it? The one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled what the law demands and has thus fulfilled the law of Christ. Same thing in Romans 13. Flip over there. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Says this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So, so just to reiterate, love's not free-floating subjectivity. Love and commandments are not at odds. I, was, I watched, I think it was Friday on CNN. Many of you probably heard Jennifer Knapp, a Christian singer from about a decade ago, came out of the closet and is a lesbian now. And I, I didn't follow her, but evidently she was really successful and popular, so it was a big stir. And Larry King had her and Ted Haggard and uh, another evangelical pastor named Bob from, I think, California on, on his show to talk about the topic was, is, is, is homosexuality and Christianity, they compatible, compatible because Jennifer Knapp uh, was claiming to be a Christian and a lesbian. And, but when, when Larry King, Larry King's such a good interviewer, I mean, he knows how to go to the heart of things, especially when, I mean, he, he has guys like Al Mohler, John MacArthur, and then Joe Lowstein, and he sees the difference. So he knows the question is asked Joe Lowstein. He knows that MacArthur Mohler are going to be clear with him. So he, he goes for the heart, which I appreciate about him. And he did the same thing here. But when he asked if Jennifer Knapp was a Christian, she just said, I'm a person of faith. So I don't know where she's at now. I bring it up, though, because Ted Haggard is on. And, and you know the Haggard story, I'm sure. If not, he was a very famous uh, pastor. He was president of the NAES, I think 30,000 members or something, National Association of Evangelicals. And, and he fell. He fell with homosexual affair, whatever else it was. Well, he's back, and Larry King brings him on and um, is asking them situations, and, and he just wanted to affirm both of them. He wanted to affirm the evangelical pastor, who was, who was pretty clear and pretty firm, and uh, he wanted to affirm Jennifer Knapp, both. And he said, you know, you just need to love her. You just need to love her. She's on a journey. We're all on a journey. We're all sinners. You just got to love. Love is the commandment. I think he, the word he uses was preeminent, preeminent. I think he said love is the preeminent commandment. But listen, love does not trump the other commandments. Love has content. Objective moral norms are not at odds with love. So, so the evangelical pastor is trying to love Jennifer Knapp by saying, yeah, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to tell you, you need to repent. 
right here. This is what it says. So the commandments here in Romans 13, not to commit adultery, not to commit murder, not to steal, not to covet. They're simply other ways of saying love your neighbor, aren't they? James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law, the kingdom law, the basilicon, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So love is central to the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.24, Christians are called to seek the good of our neighbor. Colossians 3.14, above all, we are to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. John, John can be called the apostle of love. He's clear on the centrality of it. Listen to some of these passages from the gospel and the letters. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. 2.10. The one who does not love his brother is not a child of God, but of the devil. 3.10. The one who does not love his brother is not a child of God, but of the devil. Wow. 3.11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. What's the message you've heard from the beginning? That we should love one another. Sometimes I think we think the one another means Calvinistic, Baptist, New Covenant theologian. That's not the case. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Turn, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Very informative passage on the centrality of love in the New Covenant. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll read 7 to 9. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not people, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, even though I'm writing. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Here Paul's appealing to at least three Old Testament passages predicting the New Covenant. And we won't turn there, but the three passages are Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, and Isaiah 54. Paul alludes to all three of these passages in this verse, in these verses. The Lord had prophesied through the prophet Ezekiel, and behind that, of course, Deuteronomy 30, that he would, quote, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. That's Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. 
So in the new age, we've already said the Lord would pour out his spirit, empowering the new Israel to walk in obedience. In chapter 37 of Ezekiel, he recalled that he, he saw the vision of the valley of dry bones upon whom Yahweh would breathe and pour out his spirit and bring life to the dead. Paul's clearly alluding to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, especially verse 8. Let me, look, let me just read them to you. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 says this, Who gives, did Dante from Didome, who gives his Holy Spirit to you, humos, literally in you, okay? Ezekiel 37.14 says, I will put, but the word in, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, is again doso from Didome. I will give my spirit within you, humos. Very same language. Then Ezekiel 36.27 I will put, again, doso from me. I will give my spirit within you. So Paul's clearly got these new covenant passages in his mind when he's uh, instructing the Thessalonians. So we've seen that the New Testament writers viewed the new covenants having been inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Christ. The spirit was poured out at Pentecost. So now we have God's spirit. We have a new heart. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, Paul says, now concerning love for one another, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So because the Thessalonians have been given the new covenant promise of the Spirit, they have no need for instruction because they've been taught by God. The word is theodidactoi. It's the only time it occurs. Paul probably makes it up reading his Old Testament. Taught by God to love one another but he's alluding to at least two passages here, Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31, where we find promises that in the new covenant age, God himself would teach his people. Jeremiah, the great new covenant passage, most of you probably haven't memorized. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. So Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. So in the new covenant, we are taught by God. Paul also, though, alludes to or maybe even quotes Isaiah 54, 13, which says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. In the, in the LXX, it's didactus feu, really similar. In Isaiah, this same passage is picked up in Galatians 4, John 6, 45. It's talking about children of the new covenant. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. Of course, this chapter, think about where Isaiah 54 is at. It's in the midst of what the patristics called the gospel of the Old Testament. Isaiah 40 to 55, it's in 54. We know 53 very well. It's following 53, and it's a picture of the new covenant in light of all the other covenants. Verses 1 to 3 of Isaiah 54, they contain allusions to the Abrahamic covenant with Sarah's barrenness, room for Gentiles, offspring possessing the nations, Verses 4 to 8 of Isaiah 54 allude to the Mosaic Covenant with the deserted wife, exile, Babylon. 9 to 17 of Isaiah 54 alludes to both the Noahic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, language of the afflicted woman who is the city of Zion. And then verse 10 of Isaiah 54 speaks of the covenant of peace, which is clearly the new covenant, which is the fulfillment of all the other covenants. Paul sees this time as having arrived. The law is written not on tablets of stone, but on our heart. 2 Corinthians 3. We're taught by God. Theodidactoi. 
But Paul goes one step further here in defining what we are taught. To love one another. This is the essence of the law. The essence. Love is at the heart of the law. We've been taught by God to love one another. Let's go ahead and, and take a copy.